Grab your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Amos in the Old Testament as we're continuing our study through the Bible. The book of Amos, you'll find it tucked away in there. It might take a while, but last time we covered uh, roughly Amos chapters 1 through 3, and we're going to pick up in chapter 4 this morning. I don't know about you, but when I found out that my wife was expecting our first child, uh, I was a nervous wreck. I had never even held a baby before. I had no clue what to do. Um, I think that's probably a common feeling for first-time parents, wondering how it's all going to turn out, wondering if you're going to mess the whole thing up. Um, you know, if you're going to create the next world dictator accidentally. Uh, <laughs> I overthink things sometimes, it could be said. But man, I was a nervous wreck. And then, you know, you hold that baby for the first time, and it's second to your salvation. It's the most remarkable moment in your entire life. When you hold your children for the first time, there's nothing like it. You can't explain it. It's something at a soul level, a spiritual level, that is incomprehensible. And as they, you know, you take them home and, and you, you watch them start to grow and you think, oh, I'm raising the perfect child. <laughs> uh, what a good parent I am. Look at this sweet little angel. And then the day comes when you have to discipline them for the first time. And for me, I remember that day. Um, I can tell you during our parenting years, there were many times when I would walk out of one of the kids' rooms and go back to my room and cry. Because no parent in their right mind enjoys disciplining their children. But we do it because we love them. We discipline our children out of love. And it hurts us so much when they sin because we know we have to discipline. Multiply what we feel by a trillion trillion and maybe we're starting to get close to how God feels when we as his children sin against him. Not once, not twice, but thousands of times. As I said before, it's easy for us to read <clears throat> these Old Testament prophets, a book like Amos, and walk away with nothing but this sense that God is this angry God who just enjoys lashing out and judging people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Anyone, and I say this with all the kindness in my heart, but anyone who comes to that conclusion is either willfully in denial of who God is or they're simply innocently ignorant of the Scriptures. And it's okay for a person to be there. We all were at one point. I still am in so many ways. But there's no way that we can read the Bible. I don't mean cherry-picking verses. There's no way we can read the Bible and walk away with any other conclusion that God is a good God, that he loves his children, 
He paid the ultimate price, giving his son to die with my sin charged against him. As the Bible says, there's no greater love. And what we see again this morning may be difficult for us to read, but it's important for us to grasp this. We see God having to send judgment to his people. And again, if we just parachute into the book of Amos and start reading and then leave, we're going to think, oh, what kind of a God is this? But we must take into account the generation after generation after generation of people that God has begged and pleaded with and warned that judgment is coming if they don't repent, and they refuse to, and God finally reaches the point where he says, I'm sorry, the hammer's got to fall. And so that's where we are this morning. Amos has been sent by God to pronounce judgment on the people of Israel for their persistent waywardness. And chapter 4 begins with God actually taking a moment to address the women of the day in Israel. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute that uh, you slip into the back of uh, the Israeli Christian women's luncheon. And you're just interested in seeing what's going on that particular day because there's been a lot of buzz about this meeting. Uh, That strange prophet fella who's been causing such a stir in town has come to speak to everyone there. And you really want to hear what he has to say. You feel like you could use some inspiration. And the MC uh, introduces him and she says, uh, Mr. Amos, we're so delighted to have you here. We're very interested to hear uh, what you have to say to us. And as Amos walks to the podium, he looks around at all the neatly pressed white linen tablecloths and the remains of a delicious meal. He notices all the fashionable clothes and the sparkling jewelry, and he begins his speech as chapter 4, verse 1 begins. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He certainly had their attention. He continues, you who oppress the poor and crush the needy. By this time, people are looking for the exit. What we must understand is that God's people in this day had become very wealthy. They were living extravagant lifestyles. And as a result, they were looking down on the poor and they were oppressing them horribly. You know, some people I've seen in my life, some people can handle wealth and they do it with grace and dignity and generosity. We've known in our missionary travels, we've known several multimillionaires, people who were humble servants of God who used what God had blessed them with to bless the lives of others, to bless churches and missionaries. But wealth is a dangerous thing. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. But wealth comes with a hidden danger. It can cause us to see ourselves as better than other people, cause us to look down our nose at them and treat them differently, and that's exactly what God's people were doing here at this time in history. And God 
chastises them repeatedly for this throughout this book. Here are a few quick examples. We saw one of these already back in chapter 2, verse 6. He said, you sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. I mean, I don't even have time to go into what's taking place there, but just the trading of human beings was horrific. In chapter 3, verse 15, he said, I will destroy your winter house along with your summer house. Hmm. Your houses of ivory shall perish, and your great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. See, these, these people were living it up, man. They had homes at the beach and in the mountains and summer homes and winter homes, houses of ivory. Uh, also in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, God said, Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not live in them. You've, planned, you've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your many transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. The gate is where the, the sort of the place of business was. The, the uh, Supreme Court, if you will, was at the, was at the city gates. Now, it's important to know God isn't judging them for being rich, but for how they got there. They had been increasing their own wealth by making the poor poorer. They had been charging exorbitant taxes. They had been cheating people. They had been withholding justice from the very ones who needed it the most and who were unable to afford justice in any other way. And here in chapter 4, God is directly addressing the women. Their luxuries had given them a sense of superiority. And they were not only mistreating the poor, but we see next, they had become demanding of their own husbands. Amos chapter 4, verse 1b. You who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring us something to drink. Now, men... There's, there's nothing wrong with getting your wife something to drink. Let's not go nuts here on this verse, okay? Sandy and I knew a couple years and years and years ago who, I laugh, but it still makes me sweat when I think that a man would actually do this. When he was in the living room watching TV and he needed something else to drink, he would rattle the ice cubes in his glass. And that was the sign that his wife had better come running. Yep. You can imagine how that turned out. Was it two broken arms he had, or was it? So Amos gives the verdict on, on all this in verse 2. He says, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Now, let's pause there for just a second. What else would we expect from a God whose holiness is absolute moral perfection to just... Look the other way and sweep this under the rug? Is that really the kind of God we want? Are we actually going to get upset at the God of the Bible for judging sin? We can't fashion God the way we want him to be. As we'll see in a moment, we're all going to stand before him one day, and we're not going to stand before the God we imagine him to be. We're going to stand before God as he is. Verses 2 and 3, 
The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the day shall come upon you when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaks in the wall and you will be cast out toward Harmon, says the Lord. No need to use the gates because your city is going to be in ruins. Your walls are going to be broken down and the invading armies who are going to come and attack you are simply going to drag you straight out through the holes in the walls as they take you captive. Some of you, they're even going to put hooks in you and drag you out like wild animals. It's hard not to wince when you read this. It's hard to justify this with the song we just sang about our God being a good father. And it's hard not to feel sad when you see the cruelty and the injustice of these people. But the question I can't get away from is this. Is our society any different? Would it be fair to say that our nation is guilty of the same thing and much worse? That our nation has grown fat like the cows of Bashan with every imaginable convenience and luxury? All body, no soul. By the way, I just need to throw in the cows of Bashan. Um, you could actually do a whole study on that. It wasn't a random statement that Amos was making. The cows of Bashan were actually a very special breed. They lived a luxurious life, you know, as far as cows go. Um, they were pampered. They received the finest food, the finest living conditions. They were considered prime cattle, the best anywhere. They were pampered and well-fed and fattened up, but what they didn't realize was the whole time they were eating all they wanted and being well-fed and fattened, it was all for the purpose of taking them to the slaughterhouse. And the correlation that God is making to Israel is painfully clear. God is saying, you've been fattening yourselves like the cows of Bashan without ever giving thought to where it's all going to ultimately lead you. Well, next, God uses a real good dose of sarcasm, I guess you could say, to get their attention in verse 4. He says, Come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Now, those city names don't mean that much to us, but those were the religious centers of the day. That's where people went to worship. This actually is referencing something that goes all the way back to what we studied a long time ago in um, 1 Kings chapter 12, where King Jeroboam set up golden calves in Bethel and other places. And he said, hey, don't go to Jerusalem and worship like God has told you to. Stay here. I'll make worship convenient for you. Going to Jerusalem, ah, that's, too, that's hard work. Just stay here. I'll make worship convenient. Look, I've set up a golden calf for you. That was generations ago. And now here we are, generations later, people are still going to Bethel to worship 
but it's false worship. Their religious services are sinful in God's sight. And so what Amos is saying here is, since you enjoy sinning so much, let's just put up a big sign in front of your church, come on in and sin with us. Let's run ads on TV, come to Bethel and sin. It would be like saying, if you want to find God, go spend time with the homeless people downtown, don't go to a church. The irony here is rather thick. I don't know of a more subtle danger, and you hear me reference this a lot, but I don't know of a more subtle danger for a nation than religion without God. Because it lulls people into a state of being convinced that their religion will get them to heaven, when in fact, listen, religion without God will lead you straight to hell. And there are many, many, many churches around the world this very day who are putting on all kinds of activities, who are doing all kinds of good things for the community, but they do not preach the gospel, and they're sending those people straight to hell. And the people don't even know it. Why? Because they're not out doing drugs. They're not out in prostitution. They're not out robbing banks. They're in church. Religion without God will blind us to the reality of heaven and hell. I told you there was a woman here years ago who came to me after the service, and she was just coming through town. She was here for one Sunday. She was close to 90, I believe, in her 80s. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't hit everybody over the head with this the first time I meet them, but I just felt compelled to say to her, ma'am, can I ask you a question? Has anybody ever shared with you your need to be saved? And she looked at me with the most honest response, and she said, no. And I said, oh, so you didn't grow up in church? Here's what she said. Oh, no, I went to church my whole life. It was one of the rare moments in my life I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. I was thinking, did I doze off for part of this conversation? Because this is not making sense at all. I said, what do you mean? She said, I grew up, I don't remember the church, such and such a church. I said, and no one has ever told you about your need for salvation? No. I said, what did they talk about? She said, well, we talked about how Jesus was kind and we should be kind to others and we should help the homeless and feed the hungry and, and you know, plant trees for peace and all that kind of stuff. All good stuff, all good stuff. It's all fine, but it's not the thing. It's not the main thing. The church can pour millions into its community and miss the point completely. The Israelites were steeped in religion, but God wasn't in their lives at all. Any unaware passerby would have looked at them and thought, wow, maybe one day I'll be as good as those folks. 
It's no surprise then to read what God said back in Amos chapter 3, verse 14. He said, in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. Don't have time to get into it, but the four horns on the altar, the big square altar that was right there, the first thing at the entranceway to the, the courtyard to the temple and the tabernacle, the horns were a picture of power and safety. People could run and hold on to the horns as a kind of a symbolic act. I don't think it actually did anything uh, spiritually, but it was kind of a symbolic act of I'm, I'm holding on to God. I'm holding on to this for safety. God says, you know what? I'm going to cut those things off and let them fall to the ground. In chapter 5, uh, verse 21, jump ahead for just a moment just because of the way Amos ties all this together. But, but I think every nation, every church, every individual should take careful note of what God said here in chapter 5, verse 21. He said, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's what God is looking for. Are you impressed by your church attendance every week? Don't be. God isn't. The real question is, have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and are you surrendering your will and your heart to him daily? All the while these people were carrying on their godless religious activities, God had been sending them warnings to get their attention, to bring them back to him. We see this over and over. God now in Amos chapter 4, reminds them in verses 6 through 11 of all the things he sent into their life over the past generations <clears throat> to warn them. Now, this is, this is Phil as a father disciplining his children. This is you as a parent disciplining your child. Verse 6, he brought famine. Verse 7, drought. Verse 8, he said they staggered from one city to the next trying to find water. Verse 9, a locust plague and mildew. Verse 10, more plague, and they were defeated in battle. Verse 11, some of their cities were destroyed. And as you read that horrible list of things, we, we conclude in our thoughts, well, surely after all that, it must have brought them to their knees and caused them to see their waywardness. But instead, interspersed with these judgments in verses 6 through 11, that God had sent, we read this heartbreaking phrase over and over and over again. God says, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 6, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 8, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, you can feel the pain of God's heart like the agony of a parent who's tried everything to get his wandering child back, and he sits there at midnight with tears in his eyes thinking, yet you have not returned to me. Everything I've done to try to open the door for repentance and restoration for you, yet you have not returned to me.
God was displaying love by sending each of those judgments. They're hard to read, but behind them we must know that's what it took to even get through the thickness of these people's hearts. He was warning them before the real judgment came. He was sending these pre-warnings of judgment, saying, man, it's going to get worse. Sin has to be judged. I can't ignore this. I'm begging you. Here's a little taste of judgment. Surely this will make you turn around. No? Okay, well, here's something more. And he was warning them about the day that is coming. But the people refused to hear the warning that the pain was intended to provide. Dr. Paul Brand is a Christian medical doctor who was the first to discover the real cause of leprosy. It had been assumed by medical people for generations that the reason leprosy patients lost fingers and toes, they would just fall off, and, uh, and, and, and they thought that it was simply because their flesh was dying. But that was far from the truth, as it turns out. Dr. Brand discovered that those suffering from leprosy could no longer feel pain. And so they were oblivious to all the bumps and scrapes and cuts and burns that a person gets in their life. Like putting your hand accidentally on a hot stove or smashing your bare toe against the coffee table leg and realizing you don't ever want to do that again. People with leprosy could do that and just go right on. It didn't phase them because they had lost the ability to feel pain. And Dr. Brand's discovery was revolutionary. He realized that pain is actually a gift. It's a warning system that God has built into us. Even a newborn baby recoils from pain, even though its brain is too young to comprehend all the things that are going on. It instinctively recoils from pain. It's a gift that God has given us, a warning system to keep us from danger. And interestingly, one of Dr. Brand's books that he wrote with Philip Yancey is entitled Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants. His, one of his other books, by the way, you should read if you haven't, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It's a staggering uh, look at the human body from a medical perspective, from a, um, a Christian's perspective. God's people just continued to ignore his warnings until the day came when they were met with this sobering conclusion. Amos chapter 4, verse 12. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, O Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. We're all familiar with that statement. Sadly, it's become a bit of a comic strip thing for us. We think of the crazy old man downtown on the sidewalk with the sandwich board. On one side, he's written, prepare to meet your God. On the other side, he's written something else. You know, the end of the world is nigh. And we drive by and look and chuckle and go, oh, oh man, poor guy. He's actually more right than we may realize. These people had fooled around and fooled around and, and pushed God back. And God said, I hate to do this, but I'm telling you, the time has come and you need to prepare to meet your God. I wonder if there could be any more terrifying words 
that a lost person living in sin could hear. I wonder if there could be any more terrifying words that a believer who's backslidden could hear. Prepare to meet your God. Unless we think that this is just an Old Testament warning, we need to know that the judgments that come into the world in our day are equally intended to serve as warnings to us. But we miss most of them. In the New Testament, I don't have these verses, but um, in the New Testament, I believe it's Luke 13, the first part there. Some people came to Jesus, and they, they were asking him about some things that had happened. They were, they were seeking answers and justice. They came to him and said, hey, you know, what about those people who, as, as they phrased it, um, whose blood... Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, they were slaughtered. And what about those people in Siloam where the wall collapsed and fell and killed those people? What about those people, Jesus? And I'm telling you, Jesus gave them an answer they never expected to hear. He said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Wow. Boy, their ears must have been ringing when they walked away from that conversation. Wait, what did he say? Amos and Jesus both agree that every disaster in this fallen world should serve as a warning to us. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. God is still sending warnings today. And if that's the case, then I must ask, are there any any signs that our nation is less deaf than Israel was? Would it be unreasonable to look at our history for even just the past 20 or 30 years and conclude that God has been sending us warnings in this nation? As it turns out, I was supposed to bring this message last Sunday. It had to be delayed for a week, and now here we are on another anniversary of 9-11. We've forgotten about it. That, That shock of warning that reverberated through all of us that day, that's long gone. The bombings, the shootings... The natural disasters, yet have we returned to him? Yes, we have churches all over the country. Big, wonderful churches with tens of thousands of people in attendance. But have we returned to him? All the years of warnings God has sent our way. We're doing much better as a nation now, are we? We're more of a Christian nation than we ever were, are we? Would I be unfairly overstating the case to say that America has glibly and willfully and happily ignored God's warnings? Not only have they not returned to him, but they've actually run headlong into deeper and more unimaginable sin than ever before. 
wouldn't God have every right to look at us and say, yet you have not returned to me? How many more warnings do we expect to get before we repent as a nation? How much further can we stretch God's patience before we hear the thunderous words, prepare to meet your God? God doesn't just send warnings like this at a national level. God sends warnings like this straight to your heart and mine. While sitting in a service just like this, it can happen. But do we even notice them anymore? Or have we developed spiritual leprosy? Where we've heard God's warnings so many times that we've just grown numb to them. Prepare to meet your God, Amos says. And it's a warning that we would all do well to keep before us every single day. Maybe you're hearing one of those personal warnings right now as you sit here. And you do want to respond and take action. But what do you do? What exactly is the cure for spiritual leprosy? Well, it strikes me every time I come to this chapter that the answer to that question is the simplest form uh, in the simplest form that we could ever comprehend. Chapter 5 opens with more of God's warnings of just how devastating the consequences are going to be if they continue turning away from him. But then he speaks these four little words. And after all the sin that Amos has already described, we can hardly believe that such simple instructions could possibly be the saving grace for people whose hearts have been so hardened. Amos 5 for, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. He repeats it in verse 6, seek the Lord and live. It seems too simple. But that's the answer. God doesn't say seek religion and live. You won't find life in religion. He says seek me and live. He doesn't say seek a denomination and live. He doesn't say seek a personality, famous personality in some church and live. He says seek me and live. I've given this advice to many people over the years. Some of them right here looking at me this morning. You've come to me in different ways and you've said, and I, can, I could sense the honesty in your words and see it in your eyes. Phil, I'm doing all the Christian stuff. I get gold stars for everything I'm doing, but my heart is far away. I try to read my Bible and it just doesn't mean anything anymore. I'm just cold, I'm distant. What do I do? And often they're looking for three quick steps to turn the situation around. Three quick steps to spirituality. No, it's even simpler than that, actually. Seek God and live. That's how simple it is. And I say to them, I'll tell you what you need to do. Begin praying 
that God will make you hungry and thirsty for him. You've lost your hunger for him. You're full of other things. Nobody, unless they're crazy, eats a second five-course meal after they've just had one delicious five-course meal. It actually makes you sick just the thought of it. And we fill our lives with everything that we desire, every pursuit and pleasure and possession. And then when it comes time for God to want to fill us, we go, oh, I'm stuffed. I can't take in anything else right now. Maybe next time. I say to them, just begin to pray this simple prayer. God, make me hungry and thirsty for you again. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there are people here who could stand up and bear testimony of this. They've come back to me, and I've worked with them over the months, and they are transformed people. Not because of me, not because of anything I preached, not because of any... uh, cute little program we put together. No, no, they just said, God, I don't hunger for you anymore, and I want to want you. Seek me and live. Is that where you are this morning? If God were to give an honest report about you today, what would his conclusion be? Would he have to say, I've called, and I've pleaded, and I've begged. Yet you have not returned to me. If that describes you today, I urge you not to put it off a minute longer. If you're serious about this and you say, and you're not, you're not too embarrassed to admit what I've had to admit in my life, man, people look at me and they think I'm this great Christian. I've got it all together. Actually, I am so far from God right now. You wouldn't believe it. I've had moments in my life like that where I've had to go to others and confess that and say, I'm just going through the motions. Please help me, God. Break my heart again. If you mean business about that and you don't care who knows it, God is prompting your heart for that. I beg you not to walk out of this place and spurn another one of God's loving calls to you, thinking, oh, there'll be another day. Listen, the day is coming for all of us, for all of us, when we will meet our God. I think in that phrase, we only focus on that part, the meeting your God part. How about we focus on the word prepare? Prepare to meet your God. That ball's in your court. What are we doing with it? You see, that day that Hebrews talks about, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. God has that appointment on his calendar, and you will be there on that day, whether it's on your calendar or not. You will be there, and so will I. Yet you have not returned to me. Prepare to meet your God. As we close and sing a couple of songs, I would just say to you what's true every week here and every other day of the week, if we can help you in any way, you just reach out to me. Reach out to Kevin or Rex or David or any of our wives 
We're not here to put on a show every Sunday. We're here to help people. We're here to do life together and figure this thing out. If we can help you this morning during the closing songs, I urge you to get up out of your seat. I don't care if you have to trip over five people to do so. If you mean business about this, you take care of it today. I'll be at the back. You come talk to me. I promise we'll give you the help that you need. Seek me and live. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us not to despise the Lord's discipline. Because if we have any sense at all, and especially if we've been parents or are parents, we, we know that God's discipline is happening out of love. He longs so much to reach out to us in our seasons of waywardness and call us back. It is, it, it's not the anger or the judgment of God that leads us to repentance. Ultimately, if we really look at the picture honestly, the Bible is right. It's the kindness of God, the goodness of God that leads us to repentance because we have to admit he's been so patient with us. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. We Thank you that you've waited another day with us. And here we are today getting another opportunity Lord, I pray for every one of us who've heard this word this morning. If you're speaking to their heart, God, would you, would you just enable them to, from their seat or whatever they need to do, reach out to you and say, God, I want to want you as I once did. Or I want to come to know you through your son, Jesus Christ, for the first time. Lord, we thank you for your loving opportunities, for your loving discipline and warnings. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be as Israel. I pray that we would seek you and live. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. to see